morning. Um, I, I, my name is Ross Zablowski, uh, so I'm not Russin. Um, Rawson, I guess. Uh, so we, we are going to be finishing up our series, um, the Beatitudes. Uh, we've been talking about this idea of what it means to be blessed and what Jesus' version of what it means to be blessed actually is, that he gives in Matthew chapter 5 this idea of a uh, perspective and a promise with each of these. Um, so to review real quick, and then we'll get into the passage we're going to be going through, uh, we talked about the first week, the idea of being poor in spirit. Um, do we have a review slide? Nope. We, uh, we talked about the idea of being poor in spirit, uh, that the people that uh, should be longing um, for, the, for the kingdom of heaven are poor in spirit. We talked about those who mourn, that we should be uh, mourning for our sins, uh, and that leads uh to being comforted uh, once we've realized how sinful we are. Talked about uh, blessed are the meek, uh, that those are the people that will inherit the earth. Talked about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We talked about what it means to be merciful, uh, what it means to be pure in heart, and people that are peacemakers, and how people that follow these things ultimately will be persecuted for those things the more we look like Jesus. And so we're going to wrap up this series as that uh, video uh, introduced with the last part of the Beatitudes um, where Jesus kind of wraps it all up in Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 um, through 16. So I'm going to read uh, the first part of Matthew 5 13 and then we'll talk about what this is all about. So Matthew 5 verse 13 says you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I'm going to go ahead and pray for the message uh, before we get too far into the word here. God, thank you for your words. Um, let your words be what shine through today, that we would take these things into our heart and know you deeper. Uh, if we leave here with anything today, let it be the impact of your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. So Jesus starts off with, or ends rather, with these two metaphors, that we are the salt of the earth and we are to be the light of the earth. Um, and so if we think about all the things before that we've talked about, about being merciful and meek and peacemakers, this is this wrap-up of saying this is how you're going to be different, right? You All these different ways of being different and then wraps it up with the metaphor of just like blank and blank are different, that they lead to distinction and uh, stand out in people's head. So the first metaphor he uses is this idea of being the salt of the earth. One of the things I think it's fascinating about this idea of being different is it's almost like the Jesus shifts and turns to the camera when he's starting to talk about this part. All the stuff before that are, blessed are those who do this, and then he turns and says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Um, instead of, they will be uh, sons of God, or they will inherit the kingdom of God, he changes it to, you are, in this present tense. It's no longer this hope of this future promise. It's like, this is the here and now, and let's deal with how this is going to work. Um, so this change of perspective, perspective, as if to say, you are the plan for bringing this new kingdom into the world. Right? Jesus wants us to be a part of it. He wants human partners in bringing his kingdom. And so he begins with this metaphor of you are the salt of the earth. So 
why salt? Why, do, why is that the metaphor that he chooses to use? Um, there's a couple of reasons. Salt has a lot of interesting importance to it. The first part, especially in this time period, it is essential for life. Uh, it is what they use to preserve food at this point. There's no refrigeration. Uh, ice is hard to come by in the desert. And so they use salt to preserve things. Uh, and so you had to have it if you wanted to live. You had to have this excessive amount of salt. Um, so it was extremely valuable. Uh, the Roman soldiers during this time were actually paid in salt instead of gold because it was worth more to them than just a, a rock. Uh, salt was actually a useful rock they could use. The word for salt in Latin is sal, and so we get the word salary from that word that they were paid in salt. You also get phrases like a man worth his salt comes around during this period. So he was worth getting paid a large amount of salt. There's a Roman proverb, uh, and I won't try to say the Latin, but basically it means that there's nothing so useful as the sun and salt. Uh, again, the Roman uh, historian Pliny the Elder wrote a chapter in his book all about 120 thoughts about the importance of salt. Uh, it, it was a big deal to them. They needed it to live. It was just like having water. Uh, they had to have it, so it became extremely valuable to have lots and lots of salt. Um, when I teach my kids in world history, we talk about a guy named Mansa Musa who controlled the salt trade in Africa. Uh, he was the wealthiest person in human history. Um, his net worth being 1500 so this is way later, but in the 1500s money, he was worth $400 billion because uh, he controlled the salt trade in Africa. Um, but so it's valuable. That's the first thing. The second uh, is that it's used to heal, which is part of that idea of it being used uh, essential for life. Uh, we've heard the phrase before, probably salt in the wound. It has like a negative connotation now, but they would use that to uh, prevent uh, disease and infection from setting in by putting salt in wounds to preserve the flesh that was there. There's also an instance in the Old Testament where it literally was used to heal, that God uses salt because that's what they understood. In 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 19 to 22, there's a story about a prophet Elisha uh, where he uses salt to heal something. It says, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and then he went to the spring of water, threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Right, so there's this cultural idea that it's not just act like physically valuable, uh, but it has healing properties. That's what they would have thought as well. The next thing we see about why salt is important is probably the more obvious to us, is that it gives flavor. Uh, where the Israelites would have gotten salt from this time is the Dead Sea, this body of water. It's right near them. Uh, and you can see like it's plentiful with salt. Like Pillars of salt are coming out of the water. Uh, it's incredibly salty. Uh, I got the uh, pleasure to go to the Dead Sea, uh, and it's really weird going inside of it because it's so buoyant because of the levels of salt that are in it. Uh, you can be standing like this and not touching the bottom, and you'll be floating. Uh, if you try to dive down, you're just pulled up to the top because if there's so much salt, uh, it creates this buoyancy that you have to fight against to actually swim in. Uh, and so nothing lives there. I mean, no fish can survive in that salty of water. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Uh, but they would go out and they would carve off parts of these rocks or collect it, and they would get all this salt. Uh, and so it gives lots of flavor, as we know. 
Uh, they've done experiments where it's been documented that as little as 0.04 ounces of table salt dissolved in 530 quarts of water can still be tasted. Uh, just that little bit uh, is enough for people to detect it. Um, I, I've had experience with salt being uh, tasted in things. When I was in college, uh, this other house pulled a prank on ours where they were, went into our house and replaced all the sugar with salt. Uh, so uh, one of my friends made cakes for some sort of charity event uh, and didn't know that, and they were, of course, ruined because of that. Which is, you know, a funny prank, but also really devastating when it's not the right thing. So salt has a lot of flavor, either for good or bad. Uh, it can be used for that. And so what is Jesus talking about? He gives this idea that you are the salt of the earth. So what is this metaphor that he's trying to say? We connect it back to those things that we just talked about. So first of all, we are to be seen as valuable. Right? Jesus is saying you are salt. You are are valuable. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's talking to his people. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And we're inheritors of that tradition. right? We are segulag, this treasured possession is the Hebrew word there. Um, so we are to be seen as valuable. Two, Right? We are to preserve life. We are to protect from the rot of sin. That we all have this condition called sin that is infecting our lives. In Isaiah chapter 64, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We all have this condition, but as followers of Jesus, as salt, we are to preserve from this rot of sin. The theologian John Stott said, When society goes bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach the non-Christian world. But should we rather not reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where is the salt? Right? If we are the salt of the earth and we see the world falling apart, we can't stay inside the salt shaker. Right? We have to be shaken out to bring salt to the rest of the world. And part of that process of preventing decay can be painful, right? That idea of salt in the wound is a painful process, but it is also necessary for preserving life. The third thing we can get out of this metaphor is that we are to create thirst, right? We all know that when we have lots of salt, it leads to us being thirsty. Uh, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 4, where he meets the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? Uh, we are to be things that, we are to be people that bring people in uh, and create this thirst for wanting to know more. They want to see more about who Jesus is. Um, I've been reading through the Bible uh, from beginning through, and I'm up to the book Ezekiel, uh, and it's been really interesting to read his account of um, his type of prophecy. It's very different from all the others. Uh, God, it's after the exile where we talked about Ezra, they're all uh, you know, coming back, but this is before that. The exiles happened and they were sent to Babylon, and Ezekiel uh, 
is given a different direction by God. They've already had Isaiah and Jeremiah who've been giving them all these prophecies about, you know, that you're going to be put in exile, you should repent, you should turn away from these gods, and it's not working. And so Ezekiel, God says, you're going to be a picture of what is happening in Israel. And so it's almost funny to read the book because the things that Ezekiel does are very strange because they're not getting the words. And so God says, all right, you're going to shave your head and shave your beard, and you're going to scatter their hair into the wind as a symbol that I've scattered my people into exile. And then he says, all right, so then you're going to lie on your left side for 390 days because that's how long Israel's been sinning against me. And then you're going to turn on your right side and lay there for 40 days because that's how long Judah has sinned against me. And then you're going to build a model of Jerusalem and then put all the siege work around it and then turn your back on it as a symbol that I've turned my back on it. And then you're going to... And he does all these things through the book of Ezekiel. And it's just amazing because... You have to imagine the people of Israel watching this and saying, what are you doing? Like all these crazy things. And that's kind of the point, right? Is that this idea of thirsting after, wanting to know, what is God talking about? Why is he doing these things? And that's what we are called to be as salt, to make people thirst after the way we are living, who God has made us to be. The final thing we see as this metaphor is this idea of bringing flavor or joy to life. In Colossians, uh, Paul writes in chapter 4, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to be people that bring life into situations and make life enjoyable for others. If we are always looking uh, like life is miserable and are negative, uh, that is not going to bring life to other people. That is not going to bring the word of God uh, to others. So we are to bring life in those situations. So let's take a couple of minutes and talk about this. Of those four things, uh, what aspects of being salty do you see in your life, and where do you need to grow? So we're going to take uh, just like two or three minutes, turn to some small groups, and talk about this question. So it's not just about you are the salt, but Jesus also gives the opposite in this passage, right? He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under, under people's feet. And so the question we have to ask is, what happens when salt loses its saltiness, right? And that can happen. So the actual sodium chloride, the salt itself, doesn't lose its essence. But the salt they're talking about, remember, they're cutting off this chunk of rock. And so it's not just pure salt. It's matched with whatever the rock happens to be there from that bottom of the, the ocean. And so the sodium chloride can leak out of it and go into this other rock that is not what they actually want. And so that's the idea of the salt losing its saltiness uh, other times. So in other words, it becomes like everything else, right? It's not salt anymore. It just becomes a rock, and it's not what it's meant to be doing, right? And so they would use it in the street for traction, right? They would throw it out. They can't put it in vegetation because it still kills whatever is there. Uh, the Romans especially were famous for salting the earth after they conquer a place, so nothing would ever grow there ever again. Um, so they don't want to do that, so they would just throw it into the road to use as traction. Um, in another place in Luke, uh, Jesus continues this metaphor, so I want to read that passage because it adds a little more to what he's talking about. Uh, so in Luke fourteen thirty four, it says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Right here, Jesus adds on to it. He said, this salt that is saltless, that it doesn't have any saltiness to it, isn't even good enough to be thrown onto the manure pile. Right? Because it would ruin perfectly good manure in the uh, you know, planting process. Right? So Jesus says it's not only useless, but it ruins other things as well. Right? Uh, we would agree that a little bit of salt with flavor is good. Right? That's what we want. We want salt that actually has saltiness to it. If you had a bunch of other rock that wasn't salt, and you just kept pouring it on and adding it to it, right? it doesn't add to the saltiness of it. It just makes this big pile of rock. right? So why would we do this? What would be the point of having a little bit of salt and then adding on salt that doesn't have any flavor to it? And some people would say, well, look how big my pile is. right? I have all this rock. That's what I'm going for. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we fall into that trap of, you know, we have a few people that are salty, that are following these things, that are drawing people to them, that are giving life flavor. But other times churches have this big pile of rock, and that's what we think Jesus is talking about. And he's saying the opposite of that, that I want people that are thirsting after me, that are bringing flavor to life, that are preserving people from the rod of sin, not just a big pile of rock. In fact, that is worth less to me than a pile of manure, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so Jesus doesn't hold back here, right? That he is about this upside-down kingdom, the opposite of what the world says is good. He doesn't want a lot of people. He wants people that are going to be following deeply after him. This Greek word for tasteless or flavorless that he's using here to describe this salt, uh, moreno, has another meaning. It means to become foolish, right? Uh, and so the idea here is that when Christians stop being salty, they are foolish. They, they have leached out. They look like the rest of the world, and that's not going to save anybody. Right? This is about the upside-down kingdom, flipping the world on its head, saying, I just need a few people that are going to follow me uh, through everything, through persecution, um, to be able to make my kingdom happen. Um, Jesus will save the world by his followers being distinct and not blending in. It makes me think of, there's a uh, Casting Crown song uh, called What This World Needs, and this is the line that uh, stood out in my mind as I was uh, thinking about this and preparing this. Uh, the line is, what this world needs is for us to stop hiding behind our relevance, blending in so well that we can't see the difference, because it's the difference that sets the world free. That's what Jesus is calling us to be, to be distinct, to stand out in how we live. And so we're going to do one more discussion question. We're going to flip to talking about light. So, like salt, do you stand out? Are you seen as someone who brings value to any group that you are a part of? If not, what needs to change? All right, so take a couple of minutes, go back to your groups, and talk about this question for a little bit. As we, uh, as we kind of come back together uh, from that discussion, um, I, I really appreciate um, many, many aspects of that. One, I appreciate Ross being able to come and share that. Um, I don't know if you guys know... Um, what a blessing, what a value, what a picture of the body it is when it's not just one person. And I know I say this a lot, um, and it's not just because I'm negative on myself, but it, it's what I read when I read scripture is that the church, the body, is more than just one member. It's not just about one person with a gift. And so, man, we are so incredibly blessed to have multiple people that can come and share God's word. And so um, it, it was awesome for me just to be able to sit this morning and listen for a few minutes. And as he was given that analogy of, of, you know, salt, and are we just piling up rocks? You know, I was thinking about that this week, and, and God kind of just spoke to my heart about something, and he said, 
um, it was it was something to the effect of um, that I should be more uh, I should be more grateful to be um, a part of a group, even if it's a smaller group. I should be more grateful to be a part of a, a group that is going to push me to following Jesus harder and more true than to be a part of just a large gathering. Amen. You know what I mean? Um, and sometimes, you know, when we look around, like we're, we're all kind of, in, and I'm probably the worst at this because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the professional Christian, you know, as, as the pastor, like you, that's kind of the, the, the circles that you flow in. And so it's, it's really easy to just kind of make it about, hey, we had this many people this Sunday and man, we had this much money given that Sunday. And God just kind of hit me this week with the fact of, man, but it's about the quality of saltiness. Like I can flip the world up. He flipped the world upside down with 11 guys. Like he changed history with 11 people and so i just think about like just even who's gathered in this room and if if we can come together and be a group that has just man we are just distinct and we're salty and we're pushing one another to follow jesus harder like this community can literally be changed by the gospel of jesus christ and so i'm i'm excited about that and so equally with that idea of of salt jesus gives this other analogy of light light so he's like, okay, if you didn't get the salt thing, let me give you the light thing, right? Because we all are probably familiar with light. Um, and so, and so as, as, as we look at light, I really just have three, three simple observations about light and one question I want us to ask. Um, but let's look at the text first, Matthew. Uh, this is verse 14 through 16. Uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Um, and it says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Incredible passage here. I think the first observation we have is that our identity is to be light in this world. Our identity is to be a light to this world. He says, you are the light of the world. And so in, in the context of everything that Jesus has just said about what it means to be his follower, what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek and to hunger and thirst for righteousness and to be merciful and to be pure in heart and be a peacemaker. And yes, even enduring persecution, all of that, right? In order for us to be a, a, a kingdom citizen, part of this kingdom that Jesus is bringing about that Ross talked about, it's going to flip the world upside down, Right? Our role in that is to be light in a dark world, right? Jesus says that's our role. Our identity is to be light. And I think that's probably one of the problems that a lot of us have is that we haven't embraced that identity, right? We, we try to still be a part of the world, and we try to sometimes shelter or hide our light because we haven't embraced the fact that we are called to be light. And light by very nature is distinct from darkness, Right, and so our lives should, by their very nature, look distinct and different than 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 the world we see around us, right? And so, so we become light bearers, those that that reflect and give light to the darkness, and say, so how did how did that happen? How did we become light bearers, right? How does that how does that happen? Well, in Ephesians chapter five, verse eight, Paul writes about this. He says, "For at one time you were in darkness," right? There was a moment for all of us that we were in darkness, right? And the thing about darkness a lot of times, and we'll talk about this in a minute, is that when you're in darkness, you don't realize that you're in darkness because everything's dark. It's only when light comes, right? But Paul goes on, he says, but now you are light in the Lord, right? In the Lord. That is how it happened is that Jesus came and brought the light to our life. And so now that we've been given this light, what do we do? 
He says, walk as children of light. Now we have a responsibility of taking that same light and just putting that on display for the rest of the world. Right? He says, you are the light of the world. But here's something I found that was very interesting as I was studying this, this, uh, this phrase, you are the light of the world. Jesus also says something very similar in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so that kind of poses a question, right? So are we the light or is Jesus the light? Right? In, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. So which one is it? Right? And I think the answer is yes, it's both. Right? Um, I think it's, it's, it's both. I think we're both uh, to be the light of the world. And the way I think this works out is, is a whole lot like the picture of the moon. You know, um, I, I don't know how many of you have really spent a whole lot of time studying the moon. Uh, I am no moon expert. I will tell you that much. Um, but what I do know is that the moon doesn't produce its own light. Right? We know that. It's just, a, it's just a ball. It's just a rock. And it's only from the light of the sun that the moon gives light. And so, and so in the same way, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Is that it's not our light that we shine. It's not like some sort of internal goodness that we have that we can somehow bless the world with. Right? And I think as Christians, sometimes we, we can fall into that camp. Right? Of thinking, man, we have something so great to offer the world. And this righteousness becomes a self-righteousness. Right? We think we can, we can just do enough good things that, that that'll change the world. But I think what Jesus is trying to tell his followers is that you're going to be the light because you're going to be reflecting my light. You're going to be sharing my light. You're going to be bearers of my light to a dark, dark world. And so we are to be the light. This also makes me think about um, there's another place in Scripture where God tells us that, that that's, that's our responsibility, that's our role. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 in the very beginning when God created man, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God says what? He says, he says that I have made man in my what? Image, in my likeness, right? And so from the very beginning, man had the distinct responsibility of bearing the image of God to the rest of creation. Right? That's what we were created for. That was the purpose of God creating us. And that's a huge calling. Right? Our responsibility, our role was to reflect God and to be an image bearer of God to the rest of creation. And we know because of sin that that image got kind of messed up. Right? But I think Jesus is even tying this back with this and saying, you know what? You are to be the light of the world. You are to reflect my light to the world. And that's part of our responsibility. But also notice that not only are we to be a light, but he says you are the light of the world. And I think that's important for us to realize. He doesn't say that you are just a light and then there's all these other ways. But Jesus is saying that you are the mission. My followers are going to be the way that people will see the light to come to the truth of God. That means that you're valuable and that there's purpose in what we do. The fact that we reflect the light of Jesus means that there is purpose and value. Jesus doesn't have a plan B. His plan A is for the church to be the light, to share the good news of the gospel with the world. And that's Jesus' only plan. And so we need to realize that. You know, I think a lot of times, even for me personally, I, I kind of get into this mindset sometimes of, well, somebody else will do it, right? Somebody else will do it. If I need to reflect the light, if I need to have a conversation with somebody, if I need to say 
some speak the gospel to somebody else, if I need to live the gospel out to somebody else, I kind of it's very easy sometimes for me to fall into that mindset of somebody else will do it, right? God will send somebody else along. But what Jesus is saying here is that you are the light of the world. You are the somebody else, right? God has placed each of us in the places in our lives that he has for a purpose and for a reason. And that's to be the light. And we have to be real careful that we don't just think that somebody else will do it. Yes, God is sovereign and God is in control and God is going to ultimately work everything out for his good purpose and his good plan. But part of his good purpose and part of his good plan is for us to be the light. And so we are the light of the world. That's part of our identity. That's part of who we are is to be the light. And what happens when we start to take that on, when we become the light to the world? Our lives are going to look different from the world. That's just going to happen naturally. And I'm not talking about some sort of superficial, like we're better than the world, or I'm going to tell you how much better that I am, or I'm going to put my holiness on display for the world to see, like, like in, a, in a very prideful, selfish way. But when we start following Jesus, right, when we start living these beatitudes, right, when, when I become broken and contrite in my spirit over my sin and my brokenness, and when I, when I start to mourn over that sin and then that starts to lead me to meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the rest of these beatitudes, my life is going to look different. It's going to shine. Not because I'm trying to, to elevate myself or to make myself look better for the world to look at me, but that's just going to come out because we're going to look distinct and different. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here is that our lives should look different from the world. And so if we take a realistic look at our life, right, if, if we're just dead honest with our lives and we look at our lives, would we say that there are distinctives in our lives that make us look different than the rest of the world, right? Because Jesus is saying that if you're his, right, if you're his follower, you should look different. You are the light of the world. And the light should be distinct from the darkness, so our identity is to be the light to this world. The second observation from this text is, is not only our, or is that our identity, but we are to be light together. Jesus goes on in his analogy of light, and he says in, in the end of verse 14, he says, but a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And I think there's kind of two significant things he's using in this, in this picture. One, the fact that a city that is on a hill is going to be noticed, Right? If you're ever driving somewhere and you see a city that's kind of set, and this was something, uh, as, as Ross and I were talking about the, this week, um, throughout history there were cities that were built up on high places. And you could always see those places, right, because they kind of stood up above. And kind of historically this idea of a city set on a hill has been used by, by politicians and other people to kind of uh, use as a picture of, of the ideal, right, as, as a city, as, as people that we will look to as a hope and as an ideal. And I think that's part of of the analogy that Jesus uses here is that, yes, the world should be able to look at our lives as, as followers of Jesus and notice that, that there's something distinctly different about our lives and that there's something that God is doing in our lives that they don't have in their lives, right? And it should, it should draw them to that. I think that's part of the analogy. Um, I think the other part of the analogy, though, is the fact that he says that it's a city. And if you've ever been uh, maybe up on a mountaintop or somewhere uh, at an overlook at nighttime and you've ever seen a city at nighttime, right? One thing you'll notice is that it's not just one light shining in the city, right? But it's a plethora of light sprinkled throughout that city that makes up that, that landscape, right? And what I, what, I, what I feel like part of this that we need to understand is that, yes, it's important that we shine our light into the world. But our individual light is only going to shine so bright, Right? 
But imagine a community, a city of lights coming together and shining. Think about the brightness and the impact that would have for the gospel. Think about the impact that would have for our world. So we're to be a city set on a hill, right? A collection of lights shining the gospel and the good news of Jesus coming together to shine that light into our community, right? I mean, we, 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 we kind of all intrinsically um, get that picture, uh, but, but what about practically, right? Like if we think about our little community here, right? Our little, our little blip on the map, right? Rocky Mount, Franklin County, right? Um, the greater metropolis of Franklin County, if you will, right? This little small area, little rural area that God has, has placed all of us in. Some of us, for all of our lives, we've lived here. For others, God has kind of transplanted us here, um, right? But you think about the impact of even a small group like this. If we were truly to be light to this city, the impact, or to this county, the impact that would have on this county, right? Like, like I think our community has seen enough people that call themselves Christians. They've seen a lot of that and, and come to find out that that light was not really bright. But what would it look like for a community of people to come together and actually reflect this in the way that God's called us to do? To start to live out these uh, attitudes and these beatitudes in our lives. What would our city do? Like, what would our, what would our county do? Right? What impact would that have on our community if we start to live in such a way that not only am I one light shining, but we are a collection of lights shining together? I kind of made a mention to this earlier um, as I was telling you guys about uh, thinking about the community that God's called us to, to be a part of and, and, and what that means. Um, but, you know, this week I was also reminded, um, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of church settings, a lot of times um, the church kind of looks to one person as that light, right? We look to the, maybe to a professional person or maybe a small group of people to be that light. Um, and I was so encouraged this week just thinking about what God is doing even in, in the midst of our, our small little group. Um, so a lot of you guys know uh, our, kid, our kids, uh, Nicole and I, like our, our five kids, have been sick this week. Um, and so it became pretty obvious early on uh, Friday morning that I wasn't going to be able to go do the serving event we had Friday night. And, you know, in a lot of, a lot of church settings, if the pastor is not there, then the event just doesn't happen. They just cancel the event. It's over, right? Because the, the light, the one guy, the guy who is to be looked to for everything, right? Like he's not there. We can't do that. Um, and I was just so encouraged. All I did was pick up a phone call and say, hey, man, uh, called one of our guys on our team. Like, hey, I'm not going to be there. Uh, kids are sick. And he's like, hey, we got this. We got this. Um, and I just think about how beautiful a picture that is, is that it's not just dependent on one light to shine in the city. Right? It's not just dependent on one person to be an impact, but it's a city of lights. And so that event, people were still able to go um, out to the community and love on their community, even though I wasn't able to be a part of it. And I think that's what the church should be about. Right? It should be about us collectively coming together and shining the light of Jesus to our community. And so we are to be a city set on a hill. And the world's going to look at that and take note. So let me ask, like, how are we doing with that part of that, right? Now, I know individually maybe we're, we're shining a light, but how are we doing as a church coming together and shining a light? Because from what I read that Jesus said in, in the Gospels, as he said, that was his hope. That was the way that Jesus was, that was his plan for reaching the world was the church. And not just the church, but the, the church would come together. In John chapter 17, we get a picture of this. 
we get a picture of this. Jesus is, is praying for his disciples in John chapter 17. Uh, and this is uh, verses 20 through 23, and he says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. So that, here's the, here's the important part, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Right? Jesus is saying in this prayer that he's hoping and that his hope is that the world would see that he is truly from God. How are they going to see that? Because his, his followers are one. That there's unity. And I think as, as broken and as fractured as our world is today, when they see a group of individuals coming together, right, and putting past their preferences and, and, and getting past all of the things that, that they like and learning to live in community and loving one another, that's going to shine a bright light to our world, right? When the world can see that there's a group of people who, yes, we're still messed up and we still have issues and there are things we're still working through, but we're doing that together, a picture of the gospel. I think that's going to be very attractive to our world, and I think it's going to draw our world in, which is the whole point of the light. And so our identity is to be the light to the world. We are to do this together, but then third observation is that the light must shine to reveal what darkness hides. Right? He goes on in, in verse 15, he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house, right? If we don't shine our light in this world, right? If we, if we continue just to keep it huddled up in these little safe pockets and we never go out into the world and shine the light, then our light is, is kind of useless, right? Light has the greatest impact when it's in darkness, right? That's when you can tell the biggest distinction is when light goes into dark places, and so we, as a community of believers, are to go out into a dark world and share the light of Jesus in our lives. You see, light, light doesn't change anything. It only reveals what's there. And in the same way, darkness doesn't hide anything, or it doesn't change anything. It just hides what's already there, right? I mean, that's, that's the picture here. Um, and so as the light, as we go into the lives of people around us and the world around us, we're going to reveal what's already there. We're going to go reveal the broken things that are already there. We're shining a light on that. And I'll be honest, when we go and we shine the light on certain areas of people's lives and in our world, the world's not going to always embrace that and they're not always going to love that, right? Um, there's going to be some kickback from that. In fact, Jesus even says in John chapter 3, verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil, right? When the light came in and it shined its light, it didn't make, right? The darkness didn't make the person evil. They were already evil, but it was just kind of concealing that, right? And they hated the light because the light would reveal then the evil works that was already happening in their heart and in their lives. He goes on, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Right? 
So as we are called to live our lives out, we are to go and reveal light into the darkness. So we're going to talk about how we do that. How do we, how do we live our light out in such a way? How do we expel darkness? How do we bring our light into dark places? Right? And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning is, is, is around this one question. Right? How bright is your light shining? Right? This, is the, this is the practical walk away uh, for us today. How bright is your light shining? Just think about that for just a minute. You see, uh, as the Bible says, we all have light, right? If we're a follower of Jesus, we all have light. I don't think that's the problem in the church is to realize that we all have some light. I think the question is how bright is our light shining, right? If we think about our lives uh, and we're really, really honest, we realize that sometimes, yes, my light may be shining, but it may be super dim, Right? I may just barely be, yeah, in, in, in a certain context and around a certain group of safe people, yes, maybe then I'll shine my light a little bit. But, but God, don't ask me to go over here in this dark place and shine my light, right? There's just too much at stake. I can't risk that, right? I'm not willing to go and, and to actually be distinct and stand out and make a difference, right? Jesus says uh, in, in verse 16 here of our passage, Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? So let your light shine before others. We have a responsibility to let it shine in the world around us. And so let me just ask us, church, like how are we doing with shining our light bright for Jesus Christ? How are we doing that in the practical reality of everyday life? Right, because I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think Jesus is talking about these these grand moments, maybe where we stand up on a on a soapbox in the middle of the street corner and we yell and condemn people. Right, that may be part of it, maybe. But I think more practically, what Jesus is talking about our light shining is in our everyday lives, around those people that God has already placed in our lives. How are we shining the light? How are we shining the light? Are we being a beacon? to those people around us? Are we known as the people, right? Are we known in people's lives as those who have something distinct and different around them? Or people just say that we're kind of like everybody else, right? Like, like have, we, have we kind of taken our Christianity and have we so secluded it to, to our lives that it just kind of becomes another thing that we do? Or have we truly embraced this identity of being in the light and people can't help but describe us by using the words Jesus and Christ as they think about us, right? As they think about our lives. How are we doing with this, church? Because we, we have taken eight weeks to go through these Beatitudes. We've taken eight weeks to, to kind of walk through these perspectives of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But none of that really matters if we're not going to shine that light. Like, that's why we have these beatitudes. That's why we're to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek. All of those, Jesus kind of sums up in this last passage and said that we can be a light to the world, right? And so if we just keep that light to ourselves, we're missing out on the purpose that God has called us to be. So we are all light. How brightly are we shining? So I want to just talk for a few minutes practically about what this, what this looks like, right? Um, and the first, and the first uh, I don't know, thought I had about that, I guess, is people will never experience the truth of the light until they relationally experience you, right? 
People are never going to get to know the true light that you have until you actually get to know you. As long as we keep people at arm's length and we never bring them into our lives, they're never going to truly see the light of Jesus Christ in our life. And I think that's probably a lot of the people that I know that aren't followers of Jesus, I think that's the biggest reason why, is that they don't know a Christian that has really brought them into that part of their life. They've never truly experienced what it's like to have a relationship with a genuine Christian. Right? Like, yes, they may know us at work and they may know that, hey, we pray over our meals or that we say, hey, I'll pray for that man or whatever. But we've never brought them into our lives. We've never opened our homes and our lives in such a way that we're actually living life on life with people. And they actually get to see the light of Jesus in our lives. I think a lot of people have never met a genuine Christian that would contradict their idea of Christianity. You know? Most of the people that are not showing up to church on Sundays have an idea of what a Christian is, right? They're not, they're not oblivious to it, right? They have a care to something another. Yep, thank you, Ross. That's why I have you here. Um, they have one of those, right? In their mind of what a Christian looks like, right? Maybe uh, somebody goes to church on Sunday, maybe someone who doesn't use bad words, maybe something like that, right? But they also have a lot of misconceptions about Christians, right? That Christians are just kind of a group of people who think they're better than everybody else, and Christians are this and Christians are that. And part of the reason that they have all of those misconceptions is because they've never actually experienced life with a Christian. We don't actually bring people into our lives that aren't Christians. So they need to experience that. People need to see how Christians love one another. Christians... I mean, other people, the world needs to see how Christians pray for one another. The world needs to see how a Christian loves their spouse because that's what Jesus has called them to do. They need to see how a Christian is, will train up and raise their, their kids in godliness. They need to see how a Christian will, will steward their finances and be responsible in that. They need to see how a Christian will handle conflict. And they can never see that as long as we keep them at arm's length. And I would say, until we bring them into our homes and into our lives, they're never going to see that. And so as the church, as those that have the light, we have to be able to share that light with the world. We have to be able to bring them in. We need to be able to bring them into our lives. Secondly, they, they must be able to, we must be able to put on display the good works that God has called us to do. The world needs to see the good the world needs to see that the love of God and kindness and joy are important. They need to see that God is better than everything else that's vying for their attention. And they're only going to see that if we let them into to our lives. If we start to show those things in our lives. If we start to shine the light to those uh, in those areas. Right? They're never going to see that God is better than the substances that they're addicted to or the, the other things that they have going on or, or whatever it is that, that has their heart, the darkness of this world that has their heart until they can see how good God is. And the best way they're going to see how good God is is, is is by us practically loving on the world and showing kindness and joy to them. And I think sometimes Christians, we just give a bad example of what it means to be a follower of God, right? We walk into our job settings and we're like the grumpiest people in the room. Right, we show up and and, and and we're just right there at the gossip table. Right, we're we're the ones even leading the conversation. There's nothing distinct about us to point people to the good, loving kindness of God. So we must use these good works not to to build ourselves up, but to point people to God, to point people to the true 
light. And then finally, there's moments that we must stand up for the truth and what honors God in our lives, right? There are moments that we have to, as light bearers, stand up for the truth and say the hard things, right? And I know for a lot of us um, in this room, like, that's probably our, our biggest fear, is that we have to say something that's going to be uncomfortable or something, have a hard conversation with somebody. Um, and I can tell you, as, as someone who has received hard uh, conversations from people and have seen, have received that, um, in the moment, a lot of times, I don't like that. I don't like it when people have those hard conversations or ask me those tough questions. But I'm always grateful at the end. And it always somehow points me closer to Jesus. And I think in the world, we have to realize that, that there are moments that we have to stand up and be the truth in people's lives, right? And so there's moments that we need to bring truth and conviction to other people's lives. Now, this isn't a free pass just to be a jerk, right? This isn't the person just stands up on the, you know, on the floor at work and starts pointing out at people, right? But this is the person who stands up for the truth. And so practically, like, what, what does all of this look like in my, in my everyday life, right? What ways can I show love to non-believers, right? How can I show love to non-believers? Well, maybe, first of all, you can just be hospitable, right? Like, maybe we could just start opening our homes to people up and just loving on people really, really well. Like, maybe we could just become the people in our communities that people say, you know what, I don't know that I'm really in on everything they believe. Man, those people show such hospitality when they have me over. They genuinely, genuinely care about me. And I, I don't know that I'm 100% there with Jesus, but man, there's something about those people's lives. There's something about the kindness that they show me. There's something that's, that's different about them. Maybe we ask the question, what do I need to stand up for, right? Like, like let's just be honest, in, in most of our work situations and places that we, we go, right, um, how do we react when that joke is told, right? Do we just kind of go along with the crowd and just kind of laugh even though we know that it's not honoring to God or to another person, right? Maybe our lives could look different by the fact that we're just not going to laugh at that. We're not going to participate in that and, and, and just be a testimony in that. Maybe it's the gossip thing, right? Maybe we're just not going to be, we're not going to allow ourselves to be a part of that gossip. Maybe we're going to be the people who stand up for truth and not give in to that. Practically, how are we doing that? Who do we need to invite into our life so that they can see the light, right? Who are those people that God's put into our lives that we need to just bring them into our life? And that can be as simple as ha having them over for a meal, going out. I mean, I, one thing I'm learning is that kids are an incredible open door for people, right? If you, if you have kids and young kids and stuff, it's a great way just to connect with people. Um, invite them over, get your kids playing. Um, you know, our, our, our boys are, they're so funny sometimes. Um, sometimes they, they kind of like, they get us into these relational situations I don't even want to be in, right? But they'll see somebody and they'll make a new friend at the park and then they'll invite the friend over to our house before we've even like met the parents or anything, right? They're like, hey, you want to come over for dinner? And we're like, yeah, that's great. Who is this kid again that's coming with us? Um, but I think, I think we should be like that, right? We should have people over. Do we know those people that God has put in our circles in our lives? Are we using that opportunity to bring the light to people? And so I, I think as we, as we kind of close out this morning, as we think about, man, what is, this, what is this that God has called us to be? To be salt and to be light. To be distinct 
and to be a, a picture, right? A city set on a hill collectively as we're shining our light to our community. Where's God called us to be? Who has God called us to bring the light to? Because we all have those people in our lives, right? Like if, like if we were to stop and to think for a minute, I bet we could all probably name five people that we know just in our circles of life right now that are not following Jesus, right? And so I want us to start thinking about practically what that looks like to live this light out. How can we do that? And this morning, I'm going to actually ask us to take one step further than that. Okay? So, so Tom's going to come up here in a minute. He's going to lead us in, in uh, one more song. And this is just a, a time of response and, and praise. We're going to sing, Come Thou Fount. And we're just going to praise God for who he is and, and the blessing um, that God is in, in our lives. And we're just going to sing that out. But during that time, um, I have the whiteboard set up in the back. Um, and there are some, some markers over on the table. Um, and, and just kind of as God brings those people to your mind, um, those people that you know that don't have the light of Jesus in their life, those people that you know um, that are in your circle that you see on somewhat of a regular basis that don't know Jesus, I would ask that you would just go up and write just the first name on the board. Because here's what we're going to do. Um, we're, this is going to be two-part, all right? We're going to be real practical. One, this is going to be a challenge for us as those, those names are up there that we're going to start thinking of ways that we can start to bring those people into our lives. So maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's going out for coffee. Maybe it's just spending time with that person. But start to, to, to spend uh, some of our relational time with that person so they can start to see the light of Jesus in our lives. That's going to be the first way. But secondly, like we mentioned earlier, we're about to start a series on prayer. And so throughout this series, we're also going to be lifting those names up. Because what we know is that it's ultimately not our works, but it's ultimately God that changes hearts and minds. And so we're going to pray over those names for the next six weeks, that God is going to do something significant in their lives. And so as we sing this last song, and as we kind of close out today, I would just ask that you think about some names, think about some lives, some people, um, that you're going to be going and being salt and light to. And then also that we're going to be lifting up in prayer over the next six weeks or so um, together. And so as, as, as Tom comes and, and leads us in this last song, this is, this is our response this morning, um, is to come and to write these names down.